Hi, and welcome to the Man Down podcast, the podcast where we talk all things men's mental health, masculinity, vulnerability, and everything in between. From guest interviews with inspirational individuals sharing their own vulnerabilities, through to the breakdown, where we break down different types of mental health support so that you can make the most educated and best informed decision possible to get help for yourself. As Matt Haig says, Man Up is not a call to strength, it's a demand of weakness. And the time for Man Up is over. This is Man Down. I am incredibly proud to say that Man Down is brought to you in partnership with Better, a charity raising awareness around mental health and suicide prevention through a range of exciting events and initiatives. Please head over to www.better.org.uk, that's B-E-D-E-R, or find them on Instagram at better underscore UK. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Man Down. Thank you so much for joining me again. In today's episode, I am joined by the brilliant Lars Vilder, who's the Chief Business Officer, President and Co-Founder of Compass Pathways, who are one of the largest private psychedelic assisted therapy companies in the world. And they're at the forefront of the research and work going into some of the amazing progress being made around psilocybin therapy, which we're going to hear a lot more about in the episode. I speak with Lars about his own mental health journey, which led him to his first ever experience with psilocybin, as well as the amazing work being done by Compass and the future of psychedelic assisted therapy within the mental health space. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or any questions. So Lars, thank you so much for, for joining me. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Jamie. Uh, glad to be here. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing really well. Thank you. I always slightly taken aback when that question gets asked back in an interview. But yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm just about surviving the heat here in London at the moment. I've got my, I've turned my fan off just because it's quite noisy and I didn't want it to interfere with the, <laughs> the recording. Um, but I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm super excited to, to have you here. Um, I'm very, very interested, very kind of well immersed in, in the space of, of psychedelic, psychedelic therapy um, and all of the amazing work that is, is happening in this space. So I'm really, really looking forward to, to our conversation. So thank you so much for being here. Um, I'd love to start before we actually dive into the work that you guys do at Compass Pathways and sort of the space more generally to, to hear a little bit more about your own journey. I, I've noticed that you've been quite open in other interviews and, and online more broadly around your own experiences with mental health and, and I guess how that then leads into the work that you now do in this space. So yeah, I'd love to, to share that with, with people if you're, if you're happy to share. Absolutely. And again, thanks for having me. Look, my, my background is um, in business uh, very much. I studied business in undergrad and finance in grad school and um, realized that I uh, was very much drawn to entrepreneurship. Um, however, I guess it's my, my German uh, background that makes me very risk averse. And so I uh, initially took kind of a first step in that direction and joined a growth-oriented uh, private equity fund that was started by very successful entrepreneurs. I felt like, you know, from the 
from the sidelines, I could immerse myself in entrepreneurship by acquiring companies and then further developing them down the road through buy and build uh, strategies. And I did that for three years. Um, and during that time period, um, out of the fund, we actually started um, a company that was called Global Fertility uh, back, back in the days. Now it's called Vivaneo, and it's the largest provider of in vitro fertilization services in Europe. And we acquired um, uh, clinics, we built our own clinics. That was a, a lot of fun. Um, and I acquired another company from an American entrepreneur, uh, which was a direct sales company. He became a good friend and mentor of mine. And uh, eventually he convinced me that I should uh, you know, take the plunge and uh, become an entrepreneur myself. Um, I was 25 at the time when I uh, started my fully owned company at the time. Um, which was a, a kitchen equipment uh, company. Um, at that time, there was no online sales of kitchen equipment. I was a hobby chef myself, so I thought, okay, you know that, that I can I can scratch my own itch here. I understand the market. I'm a hobby chef. Um, got a couple of friends involved um, that equally shared a passion for good food, and we built that company. Um, we had to reinvent ourselves a couple of times in that journey. Eventually, Amazon also started selling kitchen equipment. There's no competing with Amazon that we learned very quickly. And uh, we decided to become uh, designers and uh, manufacturers of kitchen equipment ourselves. Um, the company is called Spring Lane uh, with several sub-brands. It's doing extremely well. Um, and uh, so we turned the ship around and uh, created a completely different business out of that. And so I employed a lot of friends uh, in that company, um, one uh, uh, of which very unexpectedly died uh, from a massive heart attack in early 2016. Um, and that triggered an episode of uh, anxiety uh, disorder for me, generalized anxiety uh, disorder, and then with uh, bouts of panic attacks mixed into it. And um, there were a couple of reasons for it. There was a confluence of different things that went uh, south all at the same time uh, in my life and um, uh, I had a friend of mine a doctor that called and said look you know I have these problems is there anything you can do to fix it and first I was put on SSRIs uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, that are prescribed for anxiety disorder as well kind of as a first line treatment oftentimes and um, they didn't work for me um, they had all kinds of side effects um, weight gain uh, libido loss etc um, but they didn't do anything for the anxiety. So, you know, and, uh, but I think they contributed for me to become increasingly depressed, uh, probably also out of that feeling of being trapped in that situation. And I'm a very outgoing person, very social. I take a lot of um, uh, energy from actually interacting with people. And suddenly that had become a drain of energy for me. And um, so again, I uh, talked to my doctor friend and he then prescribed um, atypical uh, tricyclics. Uh, for my depression, because I had already been on SSRIs, and um, uh, that makes made things worse. I would say it eventually got hold of the anxiety disorder, so I didn't. It was a weird feeling because I perceived still that I was going through these thought loops that triggered the anxiety, but they kind of the anxiety was running in the background and didn't impact me as much anymore. So it wasn't gone. It was just that I felt more it blunted the response to the anxiety, if that makes any sense. And, um, but I became increasingly depressed. Um, I was a very functional depressed person. So I was just very, I had a lack of uh, emotions uh, at that time, I would say, uh, both positive and negative. Um, everything felt very gray. 
I barely slept at the time. Um, other than work, I lacked any energy for anything, um, really. Uh, I used to be an athlete. I didn't enjoy doing sports anymore. I didn't enjoy doing anything with my friends on the weekends. And, um, and yeah, so I, I had battled with that for uh, the course of a year, tried different approaches in terms of nutrition and supplements, other medication, um, and then some therapy. And I uh, got introduced to a very talented uh, psychologist um, that was also a coach. Um, and that was super helpful. It was a, a very much psychoanalytic. Um, and I, I keep saying, I think it was six sessions or seven sessions that I did with him um, over kind of 60 to 90 minutes. And within these sessions, he kind of figured out what was wrong with me in that he kind of identified with me uh, some of the um, stresses that led to that situation uh, over time. And you know, now in hindsight, at better understanding psychology and psychiatry, I realized that I was really in a situation of learned helplessness. I felt very much stuck in a situation. Um, I, um, in, in the company, I had a free riding shareholder situation, which made me very, um, uh, yeah, help, helpless in a way, um, because I felt very responsible for the company and my team. At the same time, I um, uh, didn't feel any responsibility to that shareholder. I had that uh, sense of um, loss of my friend and everything in my company reminded me of him. And um, so there was a confluence of things. And um, yeah, eventually I decided out of that experience that probably a first start out of the uh, depression and anxiety would be to change my situation. And so I decided to quit. Um, I formed my board of uh, directors and my venture capital investors that I would be leaving the company. Now, um, uh, I learned a lot through that, actually. Um, interestingly, the, some of the, I had two leading European VCs invested in the company, or three, actually. Um, two reached out and said, look, we're really sorry to hear what happened to you. Um, uh, and this is an epidemic. We see that with a lot of our founders. So that was interesting because people don't talk a lot about it. And I felt it's it's even more important that I'm very outspoken about my, my situation to reduce the stigma and I realized that more and more people are opening up and saying, look, I'm not dealing with the same issues uh, as you do um, or you did. And then the third investor is a good friend of mine, Christian Angermeyer, um, who then reached out and said, you got me calling. He said, hey, Lars, sorry, sorry to hear how you're doing. I have the solution. And I'm like, what? Well, that, that's surprising. What's the solution? And I said, well, um, do you know what, uh, what psilocybin is? And the word at the time didn't mean anything to me. Um, I actually had to look it up um, afterwards. And um, he said, well, look into psilocybin, look into magic mushrooms. And if it's interesting, give me a call. And so I went um, uh, and after a quick Google search, I realized there's probably uh, a reason to do a PubMed search. And I went then through the scientific papers of the last, um, I would say, 15 years um, from leading universities that have shown efficacy of psilocybin therapy for various mood disorders um, and, and beyond like addiction disorders. And I stumbled over this vast body of research that was done in the late 50s and 60s, also with psilocybin, and then obviously much more work with LSD. And that got me very excited. I, I thought, look, you know, I, the, the next escalation step for me would be some type of somatic therapies, and that they didn't seem to be very efficacious. So I didn't want to go down that path. And so I called Christian Bank and said, hey, you know what? Tell me about psilocybin. What can we do? And he said, well, you know, I can help you to have a session um if, if you want to and so i had uh, my first psilocybin experience with christian um as a guide 
and that changed it all for me um so uh, with a lot of preparation um you know when, when you suffer with anxiety disorder you you want to make sure you minimize your risk so i was uh, very ocd about my preparation for the session um in terms of risk mitigation etc and um uh, then i had a high dose um magic mushroom experience um uh, under his uh, supervision uh, so to say and um uh, it, it was remarkable i mean i had high hopes in a way that this could do something but you know it's very difficult to describe a psychedelic experience um and so i read a lot of reports obviously before and i think there are some people that have a great way to describe uh, what's happening um, at the time michael pollan's work hadn't come out yet so it was i, I Listen to Roland Griffiths' interviews and TED Talks and Robin Carl Harris's and, um, and decided to, to take the plunge and do it. And within one session, um, I, I got rid of my anxiety disorder and depression. And I worked through a lot of baggage um, during that uh, experience. And some very unrelated to what I thought actually caused my anxiety disorder and depression that came up. And I was crystal clear that that was part of my uh, situation and, and perceived suffering and I realized how uh, in the grand scheme of things how unimportant these issues were and I recontextualized them and um, developed a very different worldview coming out of that experience I realized um, what gave me energy uh, what drained my energy which relationships were important in my life which were not uh, to whom I was important and where I needed to spend time um and uh, and yeah i think uh, you know coming out of that um i always always had well not always but for the last 10 years i had a journaling practice every evening i would write down uh, a couple of things uh, that went well during the day so very much a positivity journaling uh, and gratitude journaling is, um, uh, habit and so i did the same after the session wrote pages over pages of what I learned and uh, develop my own plan of, you know, how to put that into practice in, in, in real life. And I think that contributed much more than actually the experience. Uh, after all, um, the experience was amazing. And I oftentimes think back uh, to that uh, experience. And, um, but what I did with it afterwards, that was really what, what helped me in the long run and um, the changes I made in my life. Now, um, there was in, December 2016 and uh, I then started thinking about you know this this helped me so much and I knew people that were suffering with uh, OCD uh, a good friend of mine had uh, suicidal uh, depression episodes um, and, and a couple other friends had anxiety similar to my situation before so I thought okay you know what can we do how can we get this to patients uh, and out of the experience I had with the um, in vitro fertilization clinics, I thought, okay, it, I kind of, on a high level, understand how to set up a clinics group. Uh, why don't I set up a mental health clinics group and then treat patients in the Netherlands with a natural uh, compound? And so I started working on it, you know, working on a business plan, interviewing people, uh, understanding how this might work. Um, the, biggest, the biggest hurdle really was that uh, this couldn't be reimbursed um and so it would limit access because psilocybin therapy will be uh, somewhat expensive um, simply because of the therapeutic oversight that you need during the session and the integration therapy 
And if you can't get that reimbursed, um, then you're running into the issue that uh, this will be limited to a certain subset of the population. Now, um, then very uh, fortunately, a couple of weeks later, while I was still toying with that idea, I got introduced to uh, my Compass co-founders, Katya and George, uh, again through Christian Angermeyer, um, who was the matchmaker. Uh, Chris said, look, uh, Lars, I, I, I'm sitting here and he called me and he said, look, I'm sitting in New York with my friend, Mike Novogratz. He's telling me about the couple he met yesterday. Um, they have a very similar story with their son, uh, similar to your story. Um, he found a lot of support with Ketamine and psilocybin for his OCD, depression, anxiety. And um, they have been funding academic work uh, over the past three years. And they, uh, they are now contemplating whether to do uh, Compass as a four profit um, um, in order to raise the funds required for late stage clinical trials and said well that sounds fantastic next day we met in london already with katya and george uh christian after you know two three hours said look you know lars is going to do some more due diligence but i'm really interested in investing in the company um and and i said look i have time i've just left my company uh, in parallel to, comp uh, to Springline, I had started a couple of other companies, but they had good management, and so I didn't want to interfere with that, and so I actually wanted to do something new. And I said, look, before I start something new, I can help you pro bono on the fundraising side and, and business model structuring side of things uh, and team building. And, um, and then we realized over the first couple of months working together that we actually enjoyed working together, and there was a lot of synergy between the uh, three of us. Um, Christian said, look, he's going to invest. He brought Peter Thiel and Mike Novogratz along for the ride. And so we raised a seed round from them. I joined as a co-founder. And uh, since then, Katya George uh, and, and I have been building the company. Uh, we just completed uh, the recruitment uh, into our phase 2B study already. Um, so we did phase one, phase two now. Um, we're going to have results later this year. And then the plan is to very quickly follow on with the phase three. Um, uh, with hopefully successful results and then get psilocybin therapy out to patients ASAP. Yeah. Wow. There's uh, I was scribbling down notes there as, as we're going through, because there's, there's so much good stuff in there. I think firstly, I, you know, I'm grateful that you are able to share your story in the way that you do, because I think it's so, it's so powerful as you, as you touched on to, to be able to, to speak about these issues um, before we even start thinking about treatment and thinking about ways in which we can work through them. Um, and also one thing that I, I wanted to ask about, cause I've, I've also actually heard Christian talk about it. And I think for me, it was where a lot of, or it's where a lot of the credibility in this space starts to come from is people like yourself, people like Christian talking about their experiences with psilocybin, because I think for so many years, because of, you know, the, the history and the renaissance of psychedelics, there's still baggage, there's still stigma around, um, you know, almost this association with in quotes kind of hippies and, and it being recreational. And what was your, I guess your background when it came to, drugs alcohol because i know before you know psilocybin christian hadn't actually really touched any recreational drugs of any sort which for me i think when it comes to you know people who are serious about business serious about their academics serious about their life and actually quite as you touched on at the start sort of german and risk averse um coming to something like psilocybin isn't a decision that's taken lightly so what was your experience prior to to that session with with christian 
Yeah, great question. And, you know, Christian is, is this rare person. He's from Bavaria and never drank beer. So I think he's the only Bavarian that never drank a beer. Um, uh, but uh, it's even more remarkable that eventually he found his way to psilocybin. So for me, it was a bit different in that, um, uh, you know, I, I would consider alcohol and, and caffeine drugs um, similar to psilocybin or cocaine or whatever you want to look at. I mean, they're drugs of abuse in a way and um, with health consequences. Um, I've been an athlete, so I never took any other drugs because I've been regularly tested um, uh, for um, uh, PD use, uh, which would uh, also, you know, most of the recreational drugs would be um, also seen as performance enhancing um, by the agencies. And so um, uh, in, in that sense, um, the only thing that I uh, consumed was alcohol and, um, uh, and caffeine. Um, uh, before then, and I, I didn't feel the urge um, to to do any drugs, and so I think it was even uh, probably you know before the experience. To me, this all sounded the same: uh, um, LSD, heroin, MDMA. It was all one category for me, and and uh, you know that's the way that I think um, in schools, the drug um, addiction prevention programs, that's how these drugs are always portrayed and um, that's very misleading. Um, I understand why people do it. They don't want to uh, broadcast any benefits um, uh, to, to the youth, but I feel that um, that created a lot of stigma uh, again around these drugs. And then there's a lot of miscommunication as well. So I was speaking to a friend of mine, she's a psychiatrist here in Germany. And, and she said, look, when she went through med school, she was still taught that uh, serotonergic psychedelics such as DMT, LSD, psilocybin cause schizophrenia, which uh, is untrue. Um, they might trigger a schizophrenic episode in people that um, suffer with schizophrenia or are prone to develop schizophrenia, but they don't, there's no causal relationship. Um, and, and any other drug, be it caffeine, alcohol, or a strong flu infection could cause the first psychotic break as well. Now, I think that that was important and, and, you know, I needed to do that reading first to actually find uh, enough confidence to do it. Um, and I think, you know, David Nutt's work actually, um, uh, looking at kind of the abuse liability of um, uh, recreational drugs in terms of harm to oneself and harm to others really convinced me um, where you would find the typical suspects um, at, the, at the high end of, of both these variables being heroin, uh, crack cocaine, cocaine, um, and alcohol. Um, uh, and, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you find drugs like uh, um, psilocybin, LSD, and uh, cannabis. And so that gave me a lot of confidence that I wouldn't be running into any addiction issues with it. And, um, you know, with, with a safe container that, uh, you know, this can be done uh, responsibly. Now, I have to say that, you know, I'm not advocating people should now go run and find some mushrooms and try to do it themselves. I think there was, I got really lucky uh, in that experience. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's, uh, there's clearly the need for therapeutic preparation, the safe container and the integration work afterwards um, with a skilled therapist, uh, especially if someone suffered with some type of mental health uh, problem. Um, and, you know, that, that's why we decided to, to develop it. Um, sorry, long-winded answer to your question, what my experience no. with drugs has been before. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, absolutely fine. Thank you. Um, 
I guess with that, um, you touched on there and, and at the beginning around your own experience and, you know, the, I suppose the caution with which we need to approach this when it comes to using these substances in a, a recreational and a therapeutic setting, because it does have that unique ability to shine a light and amplify things in your psyche that may be conscious, you know, going into a session, setting an intention, and that is what you are shown, but also things that might be in your subconscious things we might not be aware of um and everything you know that compass do and all of the great work that's being done on a global scale very much looks at psychedelic assisted therapy rather than just the use of psychedelics and for people who might not be familiar you know people who may actually just be wondering what what the hell we're talking about in, in terms of a session you know the 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 work that's being done in compass at the moment you mentioned you know the therapeutic oversight integration and the session itself, what is actually that process for someone coming through psychedelic assisted therapy? Yeah, that, great question and, and indeed important to mention it. Um, so uh, first of all, you know, it, it begins in, in the studies very much with a careful screening. Um, the one program um, that we've just completed in treatment resistant depression, uh, all the patients actually need to be physician referred into the study to make sure um, they actually fulfill the criteria to be included in the study um, and to sp specifically look at the exclusion criteria. We spoke uh, about schizophrenia um, already. So if somebody has uh, a, schiz a schizophrenia diagnosis or has had prior psychotic episodes or has a family history of uh, psychosis and schizophrenia, they are at the moment excluded uh, from the studies as well as some other um, diagnoses. And then um, the patient is very carefully uh, prepared um, for the therapy session, which means that um, there's a lot of focus by a lead therapist to create therapeutic alliance with the patient, which often, lead, often begins with understanding um, the patient's history uh, through the care pathways and through their lives, um, because oftentimes there are life events that uh, might have led to the um, continuous episode of uh, depression. And then the therapist also works with the patient to provide some guidance on coping mechanisms during the experience, because uh, as you rightly said, there are uh, typically challenging episodes uh, in a psychedelic experience. This is not a uh, necessarily a fun experience. Um, it's a very useful experience. And so the, there's, for example, a focus on grounding techniques together with the therapist and breathing techniques, um, which are very much coming from a mindfulness-based um, approach. Then the actual therapy session happens in a mental health care facility um, the treatment rooms roughly resemble a living room atmosphere. So you have a, a bed or a sofa where the patient uh, lies down during the experience, um, uh, puts on eye shades and earphones, and then listens to a carefully curated soundtrack while the psychedelic experience unfolds. Um, the soundtrack uh, guides, in a way, the uh, patient through different emotional states and through the experience and provides some anchor um, uh, to hold on to. Um, during the day, there's a lead therapist present and a co-therapist, um, and um, they are there to support the patient. Um, if the patient has some episode of anxiety or if the patient needs a bathroom break and needs to be accompanied to the door, um, but no active therapy happens. So the uh, inner experience is the therapy. And as you said, psilocybin can pull things out of your uh, if you want to call it subconscious or non-conscious awareness and um, makes you 
um, confront things that might have happened in your life and uh, allows you to recontextualize that. Oftentimes at the high dose experience uh, in a setting uh, as the one that I just described that gives enough safety for the patient to really let go um, and uh, that can lead to a complete ego dissolution. So state of egolessness where we lose our self-identity, who we are and we merge experientially with everything there is, the universe, nature, these are typically subjective uh, descriptions of that state where the neurocorrelate is really the downregulation of the default mode network, uh, which is a, a network that um, runs across our higher cognitive functioning areas of the brain and constitutes our sense of self um, that can be shown nicely in, in fMRI scans and uh, EEG work, how that is downregulated uh, acutely during the experience which then also seems to correlate with the durability of the antidepressant response. The whole experience uh, roughly lasts five to six hours. Um, and then with a little bit of uh, you know, check in work and then check out work on that day, um, the day can last for eight hours. Uh, then the patient uh, is discharged on the very same day, typically accompanied home by a friend or family member. Um, and then there's the last phase of the uh, therapy, which is the integration phase, where again, the lead therapist then works with the patient to make sense of the physical and emotional uh, and psychological experience that was facilitated uh, with psilocybin. It's a, a mindfulness-based approach. Um, the idea is to help the patient um, understand the experience, make sense um, in their own cultural context of the experience, and um, derive clear takeaways for their lives, ideally some type of action plan um, out of this. Um, and, and again, I think this is really important. Um, I believe psilocybin can be a great change agent, uh, but the change needs to come from the patient eventually later in making uh, or taking the learnings and integrating them in their lives. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and thank you for, for laying that out for people, because I think it's important to understand. I think I was drawing parallels there with how you described your own experience, I guess, with the, I guess there's probably not, not a part of the process that is more important than any other part, because it's a, a process as a whole. But you mentioned in your experience, that journaling element, that, I guess, self-integration, where you're actually putting things in place and trying to not necessarily analyze, but really understand and, and feel into what that experience has meant. And do you, is there, is there merit? I, I have read some of the research, but with that down rate regulation of the default mode network, is there actual kind of merit in saying that there's a period of enhanced neuroplasticity there where you can actually, that's actually more likely to create change. I, I always come back to, uh, I've read it quite a while ago now, but the, the first Michael Pollan book that kind of made me fall in love with this space was how to change your mind. And he talks about that, the snowy hill, the analogy of the, the hill covered in snow. And as you go down each neural pathway or each decision, each pattern that you have in your life, it creates a, an indent in the snow and it gets deeper and deeper. And so each time you go down the hill, you fall into that, that same track, but on psilocybin you actually have a temporary flattening of the snow so it makes it easier to forge new new neural pathways which i think is an amazingly kind of poetic way of describing what is essentially just a temporary kind of increase in neuroplasticity but is there that was a long question is there actual merit in saying that that is that is the case yeah michael is uh, 
is a master of words, right? I love that uh, metaphor. It's it's beautiful. Um, indeed, since he wrote uh, uh, since he wrote uh, how to change your mind um, mechanistically, we've learned a lot, um, and I still feel we're scratching the surface only. But uh, it, it, we we can observe what psilocybin does, and um, um, and so that has been done really from kind of looking at epigenetic changes, some of the work that we have done, and then all the way to kind of what happens in a petri dish if you have a culture of neurons and you treat them uh, with psilocybin, um, and we see. Uh, indeed, when we talk about neuroplasticity, that's the brain's ability to form new connections. And so neuroplasticity is the highest when we're little kids. Um, and then um, it, it solidifies over time. And the older we get, um, uh, the, the less uh, ability to form new connections we have and the more rigid we become in our thinking patterns and in our habits and our lives. And um, that's why we perceive older people as being very rigid uh, oftentimes. And we can actually show that uh, in... Um, in studies and that it's much harder for them uh, to form new connections. Um, the upside of that is that they're very efficient in what they do. So we always get better by every iteration of work. Now, if that iteration has become a negative um, adaptive process uh, mentally because you're trapped in certain thought loops and uh, you're perceiving the world as negative um, through negative attentional bias, which is at the core of anxiety disorder and depression and OCD, some of the eating disorders, then you know that is maladaptive, and um, uh, and so with neuroplasticity, um, again in the petri dish, what we're seeing is that the dendrites um, are uh, so the nerve endings um, that uh, then at the end of them have the synaptic connections um, are regrowing and are strengthened, um, and uh, now more recent work has uh, shown the same for serotonergic psychedelics in. Uh, rodents, uh, where there's a strong uh, neuroplastic effect post the administration. Uh, and I think um, uh, there was work done at uh, the University of Copenhagen uh, with pigs. Uh, pigs are a phenomenal model because pigs socially are very close to our human behaviors. And they have a more advanced uh, brain development with a proper cortex. And uh, again, um, these uh, in, the, in this pig model, it was shown that also in the member brain, we see that explosion of uh, neuronal connectivity. Um, and the last uh, study to mention is a work that has published recently um, at the University of Yale, um, where they showed that uh, the same happens um, again in rodents. And they also looked at uh, when does that happen and, and for how long. And, um, and what they showed was actually that the uh, that there's an over 10% increase uh, in synaptic connectivity in what one would call the prefrontal cortex in, in the human brain um, or the analog in that in, in, in the rodent and um, that these uh, new synaptic connections um, and the dendritic spines are even um, also uh, much thicker um, uh, than normal spines. So you have stronger connections and, um, and now when we connect that to disease, um, well, let's first connect that to, to kind of healthy normals. What would that mean in healthy normals? That means they have more connections in their brain that they can use for thinking. And um, there's an old saying in, uh, in neurology, which is uh, 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 neurons that uh, fire together, wire together, meaning that um, if you use a neural pathway, it strengthens over time. If you don't use a neural pathway, you have kind of negative plasticity that breaks down. And so you create efficiency in the brain. The human body doesn't want to have 
any tissue they it doesn't need because that causes uh, energy consumption like you know if you don't use a muscle it weakens so similarly if you don't use a brain connection it weakens over time and um, so that would provide um, a human with the ability to learn um, uh, after such an experience now in what we know in depression and anxiety is that there's atrophy in certain areas of the brain in depression for example you see a breakdown of functional connectivity in the prefrontal cortex a weakening of connections and you can actually see that uh, lowered uh, um, uh, brain matter in the brain scan and so that's very interesting because these when, when you make an inference from these animal models it seems that especially these brain regions are regrown um, acutely and long-lastingly um, so that uh, might then provide the fertile ground for these patients to use these networks differently, form new connections. And that correlates with what patients are saying when they come out of these studies. Oftentimes you hear things like, it felt like a reset acutely. Um, suddenly I'm not trapped in my thinking patterns anymore. I perceive the world as more friendly. I don't perceive anything uh, as bad and negative the way I used to before the experience. So you have actually that that has been shown at the University of Zurich that you reverse negative attentional bias to a positive attentional bias over the course of one session. And, um, and then you hear often that patients say, look, I feel that I perceive colors as brighter. It doesn't look all gray anymore. It's, everything is more interesting that I look at. And so once you find something more interesting, you engage more, people feel connected to their friends and family. So they, uh, they want to spend more time with them. If they do that acutely after the session with that increased neuroplasticity, that suggests that this might create new habits. And we know that depression, for example, is often characterized as a disease of disconnection. Um, so you break off connections with your social uh, circle. And so if you reestablish that, if you form that habit of constantly staying in touch with your circle, of friends, family, acquaintances that might actually then prevent you from becoming depressed again. So um, all of that seems to be a, a very synergistic interplay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, my next question, I think, leads quite nicely on from that in that I think people can probably hear not only the enthusiasm in my voice, but also in yours around, you know, the work that's being done. And I suppose what what i'd love to know is you know is we talk about you know one session and things can things can change and i think that for people who maybe have you know i've i've had times in my life where i've been on ssris for extended period of time um therapy for an extended period of time different types of therapy somatic therapy um i'm a breathwork coach so breathwork's a big part of my life as well um but if we're thinking about this society where maybe we're slightly and I use slightly, lightly, slightly attuned to quick fixes. This maybe all starts to sound a little bit, not too good to be true, but very exciting as a, as a step forward in the space of, of mental health and, and well-being more broadly. What is the reality from, from what you're seeing in terms of what comes next? How do we actually scale this? How do we make it real? How do we make it accessible as well? That, those are great questions. Um... I think first I want to say, I don't think it's a magic bullet. Nothing is, um, mm. they don't exist. Um, and, and mental illness is a complex uh, beast, right? I think there's a, when you look at an, an evolutionary approach to psychology, you see that these uh, brain changes such as anxiety disorder, PTSD, depression, 
they might have been useful in our human past when we were living still in in tribes right and let's take ptsd i think that's an easy example right if if, if you got mauled by a bear or saber-toothed tiger and you survived um, that you develop ptsd and that you'd start running whenever you hear something in the bushes made a lot of sense because it improved your chance of survival so in a very simplistic world it made sense in a world where you're constantly surrounded by stresses that you can't escape from it becomes maladaptive so um uh, that is to say, you know, there are there will always be things um, over the course of a lifetime that will traumatize a person. There will always be situations in which we feel stuck in our modern world that we can't escape from. We all need to work. We all need to make money. Uh, we need to stay, sustain our families. And so you're always going to have these things in your life. So to think that you do one thing once in your life and then it fixes all your problems, that's not going to work. And um, we know that there are behavioral approaches um, that uh, support mental health. Uh, we know that, for example, endurance exercise, for example, improves neuroplasticity and it's uh, more efficacious than the typical SSRI treatment um, for depression. Now, depressed patients often have a problem engaging in new activities. Um, so it's not that you can substitute one for the other but they could be very synergistic. And so I think that's where the world is moving, right? You might have change agent in depression, such as psilocybin, or in PTSD, such as MDMA, uh, which is close to approval. Um, and then you're gonna use all these other treatment modalities to improve your odds of working through your issues and, and changing your life um, over time. Now, how will that translate in the real world? Um, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, in the clinical trials program. Um, but, uh, of course, I'm very uh, positive that we have a great chance of getting this treatment approved. Um, now, that's only the beginning in a way, um, because what, uh, what follows then is um, uh, how do you scale this? How do you roll it out? Um, in order to get there, uh, there, there are a couple of things that need to happen in parallel um, to the uh, clinical trials program, which is generating the evidence for reimbursement. And so when we, when we look at Compass, um, you know, our, our big vision is to create a world of mental well-being. Um, how do you get there? Uh, you need to provide access. And our mission has been to um, accelerate innovation uh, in uh, mental health and, um, um, and create, create access through that. And so how do we create access? Um, it's by generating the evidence that allows us to get reimbursed by national payer systems such as the NHS or insurances such as in, uh, in Germany and the United States um, to make sure that uh, patients, irrespective of their income situation, um, if they are treatment resistantly depressed and they could benefit from that treatment, that they can access that treatment um, and they don't have to worry about the cost of that treatment. So that's a big chunk of the work we're doing. Um, we, we work with all the payer institutions in Europe through the UNETA process of the European Medicines Agency to get their input into our clinical trials program. We uh, copied that process ourselves in the United States. They don't have such a institutionalized process. And so we're working with payers there to make sure we generate the evidence so that once we get approved, the payers will also reimburse the treatment. Um, that we make sure the um, CPT codes are right, that the therapist will be reimbursed for providing the therapy, that the psychedelic clinic owners or the mental health care hospital owners are reimbursed, um, and that eventually also we can make some money to recoup our R&D investment. So that's where it starts. Um, then we need an infrastructure um, where this can be scaled. Uh, what we are doing is we're setting up centers of excellence, um, which are basically model clinics of the future. 
for psychedelic therapies with leading uh, academic and commercial partners um, so that we can use these centers to uh, run further signal generating trials um, that uh, we work with leading key opinion leaders so that they gain their own experience with the therapy that we can train therapists uh, in these centers and that we also have a place where we can take payers and providers so that they can look at what a psychedelic therapy room or center depending on how they want to scale it um, should look like um, and then it requires a lot of entrepreneurial activity um, depending on where we are um, to build uh, out the infrastructure um, and every country is very different um, obviously uh, um, in the uk you have the nhs system and you have uh, the priory group and virgin health um, uh, that need to play an important role once uh, the treatment comes online uh, for this to be scaled um, you still have a lot of mental health care clinic groups in continental Europe um, that can repurpose some of the group therapy rooms uh, for this uh, treatment. And then you have a growing uh, infrastructure of ketamine clinics, especially in the United States, um, that are looking to integrate other treatments that are coming through the pipeline um, to provide uh, a more holistic approach uh, to mental health care. And that is all happening in parallel. Um, I was most... Um, uh, let's say nervous about the infrastructure for providing the treatments and I've been very encouraged uh, over the last 12 months there's so much entrepreneurial activity um, uh, in Europe uh, from established players um, that are revolutionizing mental health care and building big groups and um, there are large mergers that uh, make this these treatments more cost effective you see median clinics in Germany merging with priory group in the UK to build a real behemoth of mental health care uh, treatments. Um, and in the US, you see an explosion. Every small city now has a ketamine clinic. Um, and so, so that is moving along very quickly. And uh, MDMA is hopefully going to come online within the next 18 months uh, in the United States already, um, hopefully shortly after that uh, in Europe. So there's going to be second modality after ketamine and S-ketamine that these uh, centers can use to treat patients and then down the road, psilocybin and other psychedelic uh, therapies. Amazing, amazing! It's so, it's so great to hear it from from your side and and someone who's really on on the front line, I suppose. Um, if I can ask a slightly, maybe a slightly nasty question, if all being well, everything going as as you'd you hope it would, what kind of time frame would you say? I uh, won't hold you to it. Um, what kind of time frame do you think we're looking at to actually see this in the real world as a, a publicly available, you know, albeit maybe with certain financial constraints, like a, a publicly available option for people? Yeah. Um, so concretely, psilocybin therapy, um, we're going to be done with our phase 2B program by the end of the year. If the data is positive, uh, we're going to start our phase 3 um, immediately next year. Um, we're already in the preparation for it. Um, and so the early earliest would be 2024 um, uh, with uh, EMA approval in Europe and FDA approval in the United States um, uh, with the registration. Um, obviously, this very much depends on the size um, required for the phase three. And that uh, depends on the statistical outcome of the phase to be that informs the powering of the study. Uh, for statistical significance and um, um, the bottleneck in running depression trials is the recruitment of uh, patients into the clinical trial program and for us also um, making sure that we have enough clinical trial partners in terms of university centers and trained therapists that can then actually run uh, these trials with us. So 
Um, it will be somewhere earliest at 24, hopefully latest 26 um, uh, that we're going to come to market. Um, as I said, uh, MDMA probably even before that in the United States, roughly at the same time, uh, it seems, um, in Europe uh, with psilocybin. And then you already have um, uh, Spravato, which is a version of ketamine, S-ketamine, that's um, approved. Um, and we're now seeing that in the UK and in continental Europe, there are um, psychiatry clinics that are uh, starting to provide uh, Spravato, which is great uh, for patients that do respond to it seems to be highly efficacious in people with suicidal ideation. Um, and these people need something immediately. And unfortunately, um, the approved uh, antidepressants typically take weeks to work. Um, with Spravato, that might be a real change where they can buy some time, get out of their suicidal thinking, move on to another uh, treatment, do therapy. Um, and then hopefully in the future, these patients would be able to access uh, psilocybin therapy. Amazing, amazing. And my final question, because I'm, I'm conscious of time and I, I, I know we could go on for a, a little while. Um, for anybody listening who maybe came to this conversation slightly skeptical of this work, slightly, um, I'm, I guess maybe because I, I know because I've been there sort of attached to the stigma, attached to what we were taught at school, as you, as you mentioned, around drugs as an all-encompassing category. Um, what is the potential of this work you know what could we see happen all being well yeah i know uh, such an important question i think that that takes me back to our vision right creating a world of mental well-being um when when you look at the sheer size of the problem right um you know one in four people on this planet as of now will suffer from some type of mental health condition uh, over their lifetime um, three, 320 million people have been suffering with depression pre-COVID. Um, COVID has led to an explosion of numbers. Uh, we don't have any reliable figures yet uh, on a global scale, um, but we know that on a country level, we saw uh, six-fold increases of suicide rates in, uh, in the Western world, in the UK, in the US. Um, uh, we saw an explosion of uh, overdose deaths in the United States. I think the number went up from somewhere around 70,000 overdose deaths to close to 100,000 overdose deaths uh, in the past year. Um, and, and addiction really is a disease of desperation, um, uh, very much related to trauma. And so we see these uh, situations worsening, our behaviors, um, uh, the increased use of social media, um, the reduction of the traditional family system, uh, increasing economic uh, problems um, uh, for a large part of the population, uh, disintegration of work, uh, increasing use of robotics, etc., will further worsen that problem. And so we need to uh, recontextualize how we view our lives. And I think that is where uh, psilocybin therapy and other psychedelics can play a big role, um, allowing patients to understand what matters in their life, understand their problems, work through their problems, have that moment of change and clarity, and then take that into their lives, work with it uh, and, and turn their lives around. And so, you know, I'm, I'm really hopeful that we have something here that will significantly move the, the needle in mental health care. Um, and, and I'm very encouraged by, you know, seeing the explosion now of research around the globe, leading universities coming into it, the world's leading neuroscientists wanting to have a part of that uh, research. And, 
you know, we're standing on the shoulder of giants, right? When, when we look at, you know, what has been done, uh, you know, when Albert Hoffman discovered LSD uh, in the midst of the Second World War in 43, and um, that started uh, 30 years of research with psychedelic substances that has continued um, after the ban on psychedelics in some pockets in Europe um, and, and South America. Um, and now we have another good 20 years of research uh, in the books that all confirmed these results that we might have something extremely powerful here. And uh, now, you know, it's, it's on us to find the right container to bring this to the world. If we do that well, um, I think we can have a major impact on not only mental health suffering, but really on mental well-being in the long run, making sure people, you know, don't develop a condition. Um, and I think eventually, you know, in the long, long run, these these treatments can be seen much more as a mental health um, preventative uh, treatment, such as a mental health vaccine um, that patient people at risk can use uh, preventatively to prevent any condition from arising. Obviously, that's a long way. Let's first solve uh, the issue that patients have concretely today. Uh, and that's what we're really passionate about. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and thank you again for, for sharing all of that. And it's interesting, sparks a lot of questions that we unfortunately don't have time for around the preventative side of things. But um, yeah, Lars, thank you so, so much for your time, for, for sharing not only your story, but also the amazing work that's being done and, and giving us all, I guess, a bit of an inside perspective on, on this space and um, some kind of real tangible um, bits to take away. Uh, so thank you so much for, for being here. I really appreciate your time. Jamie, thank you. Um, thanks for having me, letting me uh, talk to your audience. And um, I want to say I really appreciate you. I think what you're doing is really important, um, you know, putting some spotlight on, on mental health suffering and how people deal with it and reducing that stigma. Um, because only if people start talking and realizing their problems, they can start working uh, on solving them. And I think you're playing an important role in that. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you are a fan of the podcast or enjoyed this episode, it would mean a huge amount to me if you could like, follow, subscribe, rate and review the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for the next incredible episode of Man Down and I hope to see you soon.